So we are midway through our fall sermon series through the book of Amos. And before we start to probe into this text, let me begin with a question for you. What is the record, or what is your personal record, for the most times that you have hit the snooze alarm? These days, I have a personalized wake-up service. Their names are Josiah and Joel, and they start making noise in the bedroom next door at exactly the same time every morning. But there was a period in my life where I would go to bed with good ambitions for getting up early the next morning, and then slowly lose that ambition, nine minutes at a time, by pressing the snooze button again and again. And I bring that up because what we have here in Amos chapter 4 is an urgent wake-up call. The book of Amos pronounces a very surprising and intense message of judgment on people who are very religiously active. Amos began in the early chapters with a proclamation of judgment on the surrounding nations, the, peoples who were the, en- the people who were the enemies of Israel. But the message soon progressed to the nation of Israel itself. And the people have become affluent, self-indulgent, materialistic. They are oppressing the poor, and yet all the while, they have kept up with their busy religious activity. That's part of what makes the message surprising. They've been busy. In, verses four, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, which immediately precede the verses we just read, Amos comments on this very sarcastically. Amos says in verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. As you read, you can kind of sense that, Israel, that Amos is being sarcastic as he urges the Israelites to keep worshiping. They're worshiping in Bethel, not in Jerusalem, the place that the Lord prescribed. Because Bethel was politically, it was culturally convenient. It's not the worship that God prescribed. God cares about true worship. These people are worshiping away from Jerusalem. When we look back and see that in Israel's history, they have priests of their own making and their own calling. They've rejected the Levites that God called. They have golden calves, just like in Exodus. That's idolatry. And all the while, they've been treating the poor with cruelty. None of their busyness, none of their sacrifices have translated into any heart change, any holiness. The idea here is busy religious activity, and yet it's selfish. It's self-centered. It's not concerned with repentance or holiness. But they're busy. When Amos references their daily sacrifices, the people are actually making more sacrifices than is necessary, than the law even requires. And in his sarcastic way, Amos is saying, keep cranking, guys. Keep going. Keep bringing those sacrifices. You love that stuff. It's important to note that in all those offerings, all the offerings that they're making, there's no sin offering. There's no, there's no spiritual reality. There's no honesty before God. In other words, there's no repentance. As they pile up more and more sacrifices, the irony is that in God's eyes, they're actually piling up 
more and more sin, all in the midst of their religious activity. But they love what they're doing. They feel good about it. For so you love to do, Amos says. They've been busy being religious, but it's all about self. And all of this is dishonoring to God. True and sincere worship matters to God. That's true for Amos' day. It's true for us. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, 23 and 24, Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I read this week about a local church that was inviting its congregation and the community to come to the blessing of animals. This was happening just yesterday. If your pet needed a blessing, bring the pet to church. If your pet had either died or maybe your pet didn't play well with others, you could bring a photograph or a drawing of the animal. And if you didn't have a pet, well, then you could bring a stuffed animal or a toy. So alive or dead, real or imagined, every animal was going to get a blessing. How many churches are busy with their craft shows or their meat raffles or their pancake breakfasts or their bingo nights or their blessings of animals, but there's no real worship of God taking place? And of course, it's, it's easy for me to critique ridiculous things that are happening in other churches. But the the reality is none of us are immune to this. We can be religiously busy, active, proud of our theological position, doing church stuff all the while without heart change, without holiness. And Amos says, while you've been busy with your religious activity, well, God has also been busy. And yet God has had a different agenda. God has been sending repeated wake-up calls, and the Israelites have been hitting snooze. They have ignored the invitations to repentance that God's been sending. And the Lord makes a series of declarations through the prophet Amos in verses 6 through 11. As we look at 6 through 11, I think you'll notice there's very carefully crafted repetition in in this passage. This is the written message of what Amos was preaching with rhetorical force. Five times we see the repetition of the word I, which is referring to the activity of God, the action of God that was meant to call the Israelites to return to him. Let's start to look at these one by one, beginning in verse six. So this is Amos four, verse six. The Lord says through the prophet, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread. In all your places, yet you did not return to me. That refers to famine. Any Israelite would know that famine or cleanness of teeth would be a result of violating the covenant that Moses explained in Deuteronomy 28. That chapter, going back to Deuteronomy 28, that comes at the end of Moses' life. And Moses explains the abundant blessings of God for obedience and the curses and consequences that will come for disobedience to God's law. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, Moses says to the Israelites, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God 
or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And we're not going to detail all those curses today, but those include famine, pestilence, disease, military disaster. So the presence of famine is a wake-up call. It's a clear example of cause and effect. They should look at this and say, I know why this is happening. Yet the people are unwilling to connect the dots. They did not return to God. The prophet continues, verses 7 through 8. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city, send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field in which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. That refers to drought, right? In the Middle Eastern climate, the Israelites needed rain in the winter months if the seeds were going to bring forth a harvest time by springtime. So again, that drought would be an indication to the people that they are experiencing covenant curses that Moses told them would occur. When they see rain falling in one location and not in another, they should say, why is this happening? And yet they do not return to God. Verse 9 says, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. The crops are affected, first by blight, then by the devouring locust. So the blight would have destroyed all the grain. The locust would have eaten all the fruit. This was an opportunity to respond to God. They should have seen these circumstances and understood what was going on. The blight, the locust, it's a direct result from breaking covenant with God. Yet they did not return to God. Verse 10 goes on to say, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. There's no more well-known story in Israel than what God had done to the Egyptians in sending the ten plagues and delivering the, the Israelites out of slavery. Everyone knew the miracles that God had done in Egypt and the ten plagues that had occurred. And when the Israelites saw some of the same plagues happening to them or same type of ideas happening to them, that should have been like a red light of warning. Think back, think back for a second to those early plagues in Egypt when the river turned to blood or when the frogs covered the land. And just imagine with me for a second the stench of those plagues under the hot Egyptian sun. It would have been such an arresting odor that Pharaoh and his people ought to have recognized on like a visceral level, this is not good. This is not good. Something needs to change. And now, that was then. Now Amos is using the imagery of the stench of the military camp. He's talking about Israel, God's people, the ones who'd seen the Lord fight for them in the past. When an army has been defeated and the bodies are strewn everywhere, whether wounded or dying, you can imagine just the odious smell. It should have been a wake-up call. We need to make some changes. Yet they did not return to God. 
Verse 11. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Genesis 19 talks about the disaster that came to Sodom and Gomorrah. This verse is probably referring to a natural disaster that happened in Israel, perhaps an earthquake or a fire that again could have been a prompt towards repentance. It could have been. That phrase, brand plucked out of the burning, might be familiar to some of you. That is how the great American preacher of the 18th century, John Wesley, used to refer to himself. And his story is helpful for helping us understand this imagery. So Wesley was born in 1703. His father was an Anglican minister. So Samuel Wesley had a number of enemies inside the church, outside the church. He ended up going to debtor's prison because of his financial problems. When John was five years old, the parsonage where his family lived caught on fire. And John almost died in the fire. But he jumped out of an upper window just before the roof caved in. And a rescuer caught him. And he grew up in poverty. One of 19 children. They rebuilt the house. It was never fully furnished during Wesley's growing up years because of their poverty. But his mother, who's obviously a legend, read the scripture to him and taught the children to pray. It was not until he was an adult that John Wesley was actually converted. But he came to understand himself very literally as a brand plucked out of the burning. And he would use that phrase to describe himself. In his journals, Wesley said, 41 years later, he was at an evening church service. And that night, he said he told the story of how God had rescued him from that fire. And Wesley said, I'm quoting, the voice of praise and thanksgiving went up on high, and great was our rejoicing before the Lord. The Lord saved his life for a reason. Now back to the Israelites. Amos is recounting the disasters that have come to the people over the years. Famine, drought, blight, pestilence, military disaster, natural disaster. And yet, as far as his audience goes, here they are, still alive, still hard-hearted. And he says to them, in effect, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. You are a brand plucked out of the fire. And yet you did not return to the Lord. We see a series of disasters. Each one starts with the word I. Five times we see this word I, and then we keep seeing it mirrored with declares the Lord. And all of this is balanced by this other fivefold repetition. Yet you did not return to me. Despite more than ample warning, the Israelites refused to return to God. God gave them abundant opportunity, and they refused to repent. And let's notice for a second here that God was the first cause behind all these events. In each case, they had a redemptive purpose to turn people back to himself. God's judgment is never random, and it's never punitive. Israel received repeated wake-up calls that they refused to 
to listen to. They insisted on ignoring them. There was famine, there was blight, there was drought, there were locusts, there were plagues, there was military defeat. Each time was an opportunity to repent. And God gave these unwanted events for a purpose. There's a question here for us. It's not just an ancient history lesson. There's a question here for us if we've been resisting the opportunities that God has been giving us to turn to him. And that question is really, what is it going to take? One of the ways that God provides us with opportunities to repent is by frustrating our plans. Now, we don't live in really in an agricultural society, so we might not resonate the same way with these specific images of famine, drought. But think about this. In what manner does God do this today? In what ways does he send trouble to get our attention? Sometimes God slows our pace down. Sometimes he allows us to fail. Sometimes he frustrates us in our plans. And I want you to consider this. Is God allowing circumstances in your life, circumstances that maybe you are fighting against, when it is really a window of opportunity to return to him? We think... Well, what I want is so good, and it's so respectful. How, it's so, it's so ever, anyone would be for this. It's so respectable. How could God not want me to have that? Well, the Israelites, they're busy. Busy with their activity, busy being religious, busy with their sacrifices, busy creating their preferred future. They're spiritually asleep. They're unaware. And I want you to consider that if you think God might be frustrating your plans, your pain and your frustration might be God's grace to you. Some of you have probably heard this quote before, but I'll read this from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said this. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Most of you, I think, are familiar with Jesus's story of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And that son, that son rejected his father. He took his inheritance. He wasted it all on his own selfish purposes. And then he ran out of money. There was a famine. He ended up hiring himself out to feed the pigs, which was disgusting and degrading, the worst job possible for an Israelite. And there he was, hungry, dirty, bankrupt. Jesus' story tells us that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. And I love the phrase that Jesus uses in Luke 15, verse 17. Jesus said, but when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, there would have been no return journey until then. The hunger, the dirt, the pain, the poverty, the pigs, that was all God's megaphone. There's no return journey until God opens our eyes. That doesn't happen. And the repeated refusal of the Israelites leads us now back to verse 12 
and the conclusion of this passage. Amos 4, verse 12. After all these refused warnings, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That phrase, prepare to meet your God, it's almost a cliche to us. We associate it with things like walking up to strangers and asking them if they know whether they'll go to heaven when they die. But there is a warning here. That day of holy encounter with God will come for all of us. Paul tells us in Romans 14, For all will stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Everyone will come before God. Later on in Amos, we see that the Israelites anticipate what the prophets refer to as the day of the Lord. And in their mind, the day of the Lord was about a time of conquest, vindication, military victory. They were anticipating it. They were actually looking forward to it. They shouldn't have been. It's like someone at work who looks forward to their performance review because they falsely assume that the boss is happy. And I want you, when we think about this, prepare to meet your God. Look at the poetic language describing who God is in verse 13. Amos says this at the end of the chapter. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. In this concluding verse... Amos uses this poetic language to describe the God that the people will encounter. He's the creator. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's transcendent. This is the God that the Israelites will meet. Maybe the Israelites had grown hazy in their conception of who God really was. When Amos says, prepare to meet your God, he's talking about an unavoidable encounter. And it's as though in verse 13, Amos is saying, this is the God that you're going to meet. Some commentators think that this language in verse 13 is borrowed from a hymn that the Israelites themselves would sing. A hymn that they probably all knew by heart, but never really thought about. And imagine that, singing about God's attributes without ever thinking about encountering that God. But again... We are not immune from this. Couldn't we, couldn't we also sing holy, holy, holy or immortal, invisible, God only wise with no real comprehension of what we are talking about or the reality that we will stand before this God. The God that they will encounter, the God that they have been resisting has all power, all knowledge and is absolutely holy. Some of you have probably heard this expression before. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. The idea here is that before you have an encounter, you better know what kind of encounter it's going to be. This upcoming week, Micah and I will be going to Albany for a preaching conference, a preaching workshop in preparation for for an event that we're, we're hosting in March. And I've been tasked with leading the group through a couple of very intricate passages in Romans. Micah can attest, so can my wife. 
This has been a week with a lot of preparation. And that's because I have a pretty clear idea of what that encounter will be like. I don't want to go to a workshop on Romans, maybe the most theological book in the Bible, and lead a discussion with a bunch of serious Bible guys talking about literary genres and discourse analysis without having done my homework. Because I know what it will be like. I want to be adequately prepared for the seriousness of that encounter. It's an encounter that requires preparation. Think about, think about a bride planning for her wedding. Think about someone, someone other than Elon Musk preparing to buy a company. Think about a politician planning a major campaign. None of it would be done without preparation, right? None of it would be done without doing your homework. And the reality is that like the Israelites, we will meet with God. Now, we can respond to that in one of two ways. You can decide there really will be no judgment. When the Bible says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, you can decide that's something really not to take very seriously. You can take your chances with that. Or there's a second way. But the truth is, there is no amount of preparation or homework you can do to meet and really be prepared to meet with the living God. All you can do is fly to the grace of God. God is gracious. And his judgments are so that we might return to him. When the sun started home, when he had came to his senses, he found the open arms of the Father. Amos says that the God that we will meet is the creator who formed the mountains and creates the wind and knows every thought of man. You cannot hide from him. You cannot hide from him. And you will stand before him. But God in his mercy made a way for you and I. And Jesus faced all the wrath of God that we deserved. He faced all the wrath of God against sin and he absorbed it in his body on the cross. The only way that we can prepare to meet God is to receive the sacrifice of Jesus. His death on the cross, his substitutionary death and receive it by faith. That is the only way. God's judgments are meant to bring us to repentance. They're meant so that we will fly to the grace of God. Let's pray together.